you know, I don't think we know. I don't think we have the right answers. I think the most important thing we can do is just be humble and Bayesian about this entire process and understand that, hey, we're probably going through regime change. Some of the things that we're used to doing are probably going to continue to work. Some of the things that we're used to doing are probably going to stop working. But it's very important for us to be very, you know, present and open and honest about that process in real time so that we can do less of what's, you know, going to stop working and do more of what's going to continue to work. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. A new world order is emerging, and in our Global Macro Series, I, along with my co-host, Jem Kazan, want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guest today is someone who combines the world of global macro with a rigorous data-driven framework when it comes to macro risk management frameworks, as well as processes. He's a frequent guest on many of the well-known media outlets and like us, has a deep passion for helping investors navigate this uncertain environment by sharing lots of actionable research that you can understand. So please enjoy our conversation with Darius Dale. Darius, welcome and thank you so much for joining Gemini today for what I'm sure will be a fun, passionate and perhaps unpredictable conversation as part of our Global Macro series. How are both of you guys doing? How are things where you are? I'm so blessed, man. Thanks for having me. A really big fan of the show, so I can't wait to unpack it with you guys. Yeah. What about you, Jim? Where are you? Well, uh, today? You know, Darius interviewed me maybe six months ago, so I'm excited to kind of return the favor. This should be a lot of fun. <laughs> You absolutely nailed that interview, by the way, and the market calls. So congratulations. Well, so no, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> so let me just say for a little bit of housekeeping here, we have a little bit of audio uh, problems with Jim. That's why he may sound a little bit different, but I'm sure the words that he speak will be very familiar. But anyways, Darius, it's all about you today. And since it's your first time on our podcast, perhaps I could ask you to just set the stage and provide a little bit of context for our conversation by maybe sharing some of the highlights uh, and uh, perhaps maybe some of the unusual um, twists and turns in your journey to where you are today. And then I think that's going to be useful for our listeners. And then we'll go into lots of different macro topics, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start by saying uh, I'm a macro strategist or macro risk manager by trade. Certainly was not anything that I thought I would be doing for a living uh, going back to school. I, I went to, to Yale and as an undergrad. Uh, and joined finance sort of right at the lows of the industry. Um, I was very fortunate uh, at the time to um, to to go work at a startup uh, this firm called uh, Hedge Risk Management, which is now no longer a startup. 
Um, you know, we helped grow that firm to a to pretty big size firm, but I would say my sort of core contribution to that firm and probably why I'm sitting here today was sort of, you know, kind of recreating uh, a very, you know, <laughs> very, very uh, watered down version of uh, Bridgewater's uh, sort of all weather system uh, as an asset allocation framework, um, you know, for the for the hedge eye clients and, um, you know, sort of been thinking about the world through this regime segmentation lens uh, ever since then. Um, sort of left hedge eye. I did leave hedge eye at, um, you know, about a year and a half ago to start 42 Macro. I thought there's a lot of different things that I could, you know, do better and do differently and ultimately call the shots on my own and, and knock on wood, things are going quite well in that regard. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, everybody should go and check out Darius's work and also a little bit more about his background because it is quite interesting and people should certainly be aware of that. Maybe as a starting point, um, Darius, maybe we could talk a little bit about your current uh, macro framework, but I want to put a twist to it a little bit, and that is... Maybe you could also talk about how it may have changed in the last six to twelve months, just so we know, you know how uh, how strongly or how weakly the current convictions are held um, compared to what the markets have been doing for the last uh, year or so. Yeah, no, great, great question, Neil. So I, I, I'm a big believer in, in studying the time series and respecting uh, the x-axis. So it's a great question uh, to you know give the listeners context on kind of where we've been. So. Uh, as I mentioned, we look at the world through this regime segmentation lens. Uh, we sort of, you know, we call it the grid. Grid is short for Goldilocks, reflation, inflation, and deflation, uh, whereby Goldilocks is growth accelerating, inflation decelerating. Reflation is where both growth and inflation are trending higher simultaneously. Inflation, which is where we've been um, really since July of 2021, is where growth is trending lower and inflation is trending higher. Um, and it's our current view um, that in the month of August, we're transitioning uh, to deflation, which is where growth and inflation are trending lower. Um, you know, we've sort of we've been in this sort of very high probability, sort of um, realized inflation regime in terms of the the size of the magnitude of the deceleration and growth that we've observed, the size of the magnitude the magnitude of the inflate the accelerations and in inflation uh, we've observed. But we're now kind of transitioning to a regime where we're going to see a little bit less um, expediency, if you will. On both of those fronts, um, particularly uh, on the growth front, which may be uh, slightly positive for the markets. Yeah, what a timing to be recording this a day after we saw the first glimmer of hope um, for the uh, deflationary camp. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I want to. There are so many things we we're going to talk about today, and it's kind of hard to um, sort of uh, decide where where to start. But I, for my part. I wouldn't mind about starting maybe with the the bigger picture, kind of what I think you refer to as your kind of strategic perspective, and 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 kind of the transitioning maybe from um, the world of of deflation as we knew it for two almost three decades, and maybe to a world where inflation is not just going to be a thing of the last twelve months, but actually a thing of of a of, of quite a while, even though it may come in different um, shapes and, and sizes. So so what is your kind of view strategically at this point? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, and I like your emphasis on strategically because, you know, what we just talked about was really the kind of the, the shorter term cycles um, that, you know, tend to drive the markets um, from a dispersion perspective. But from a strategic standpoint, I think it's very important to step back and, and kind of identify that there has been a regime shift with respect to the direction of travel for the trend inflation rate. Um, we've been trending lower uh, really since the early 80s um, and sort of ultimately made uh, the lowest lows uh, kind of in the GFC and kind of retested some of those lows 
pick your indicator in 2020. Um, it's very likely, at least according to, to our models, we've, we've built a pretty uh, sophisticated uh, model to project the long run uh, trend in, in things like core PCE, et cetera. Uh, and that model has is, 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 is had a pretty significant inflection. I um, mean, it's suggestive that we might see core PC, for instance, you know, trend at a rate that's around 60 to 110 basis points higher than its trend in the prior decade. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you do, the percent, do it in percentage terms, you're talking about 40 to 70% more inflation through the lens of the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. And oh, by the way, consistently and persistently trending higher than their target. And so that kind of, you know, kind of opens up a Pandora's box of a lot of different scenarios from asset markets. On the bullish side of the ledger, you know, we're talking about an economy that likely has higher potential nominal growth, um, an economy that, you know, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is deglobalization is, is, you know, is both a bullish and bearish factor in some respects. Um, but we're also talking about, um, you know, just a just a Federal Reserve that might be acquiescent to that and not push back. Um, you know, it's it's very well, you know, the, the, the history is littered with, you know, these sort of um, inflationary episodes where you go from a regime where there's less inflation to a higher inflation. You're talking like the 40s or the 70s and the central bank's, um, you know, willingness to to acquiesce to that may be uh, a big factor in understanding how that ultimately impacts the economy and asset markets. It, if you put a gun to my head, I think the Fed really is going to be forced with a very kind of very difficult choice in this in this um, in this decade, which is, do you save the economy and the stock market by effectively acknowledging that there's this you know kind of you know forty to seventy percent more inflation in the pipeline that has to come through, or else what, or else we kind of go into a depression, or do you sort of you know save the bond market? By consistently and, and persistently pushing back against those those that pressure and trying to maintain a two percent target, um, I don't know the answer to that. But to me, I think that's the biggest question we investors uh, kind of face from a strategic asset allocation perspective. Yeah, no, I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about that. And of course, I live in a country with tight gun controls. So I would never put a gun to your head. On the <laughs> other hand, Jim lives in Chicago. We don't <laughs> take it away, Jim. Wow. Um, yeah, I'll put a gun to your head. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Jim. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. um, so we can talk about uh, you know slightly higher trending inflation over the long run, um, and I think that's uh, you know based. I think you know my views, but I think that's that's a pretty safe bet given structural trends. But the real question for me is you know path A. Um, you know how do we get there? Um, because, uh, you know, we could obviously go to 10% inflation and then go to deflation, right, and, and end up in that average, right? There's a lot of different paths to get there. Um, and uh, I think in particular, uh, we're at, a, like you said, an inflection point and, and the uh, probably, you know, the distribution of outcomes, as you and I have talked about in the past, is very leptocurtic and you can have lots of different potential outcomes. Um, I'd be curious to think what you think the most likely path is. Um, and, and, you know, I'd really like to start with kind of three to six months, which is always hard, right? That's always the hardest, um, six to 12 months, and then, you know, out two to five years. What do you think? And again, uh, you know, everybody's uh, trying to prognosticate these things. It's not easy. A lot of it depends on reaction functions, et cetera. But I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts and where your head's at currently with inflation, where you think it's going, what path. Yeah, so let's start with a great question, Jim. Uh, we'll start with the medium term, sort of like how we we think about the medium term as three to six months. Um, it's sort of uh, different than kind of a, the traditional economists would think about it. But 
from that perspective, and if you asked me this question, by the way, two days ago, <laughs> my answer would be very different. Um, we got some very important um, economic signals out of yesterday's CPI. Obviously, it was a very positive report in the sense that, you know, we surprised consensus estimates to the downside by a significant degree on both headline and core. But to me, that's kind of the sideshow. The the real juice in, 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 the, in the report uh, came via the lens of the, the, the Cleveland Fed's uh, median CPI statistic um, and the Atlanta Fed's sticky CPI statistic. Um, and the reason that those are two important indicators is because they tend to track uh, core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge, uh, quite closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw if you look at if you analyze the time series on a month over month annualized basis, uh, we're talking about you know significant decelerations that you know historically we have not seen outside of recession. So many median CPI uh, decelerated 250 basis points to uh, 6.3% month over month annualized, and sticky CPI decelerated. Um, 270 basis points to 5.4% month over month annualized. These are, I mean, it's it, again, as I can't stress enough how unusual it is to see the kind of breakdowns we're seeing in these types of indicators. And, and the key takeaway here is that if you roll this kind of momentum forward, you know, over the next couple of months, and again, I'm not saying you could or even there's that there's even a basis to do so, but you know, if there if we did see this kind of sustained breakdown over the next few months. You know, we could be talking about observing two to two and a half percent core PCE on a month over month annualized basis as early as August or September. And to me, so that's a very that's a very new and and a very important piece of new information that we Bayesians have to just humbly accept as part of the new the new market narrative. Um, So from an inflation standpoint, um, we you know, it's our model's view, you know, and and again, this kind these kinds of things are almost impossible to model. But just from a, if you try to model the trend in the time series, it's very likely that we continue to decelerate. Um, it's un, it's unlikely that we see this kind of pace of breakdown continue. But if it does, and again, it's it's I would have argued that it's unlikely we even saw it in, in the July report, but we did see it. So we have to acknowledge that there's something happening in the time series and, and, and on the ground uh, that is anomalous relative to history. And if that anomalous thing relative to history continues, uh, we could be talking about a much different inflation dynamic three to six months from now than the one we're currently talking about. So I'm actually going to dive in before you go into a longer time series and, and uh, you know, push back a little bit because that just makes sort of for a better conversation. Um, it's really to be, po- to be polemical here. But, you know, if you look at the CPI report um, and, and you dig under the hood, which I know you do in great detail, the real reason this, uh, this number came in low was energy. Right. I mean, that's the, the overwhelming uh, reason. Um, uh, there are other factors, to be clear, and I'd love to hear your thoughts if you uh, disagree. Um, but that's what I see. And, you know, energy was uh, month over month down 4.6. Uh, some of the in- internals like fuel were down 11 uh, percent. Right. Um, I mean, we're, we saw dramatic, dramatic effects, the energy and then knock on effects because of that as well. And we kind of knew that. Right. Just. Obviously, we would be, be that, that, that a major uh, issue here, but it was it was decelerated dramatically more than we even thought. And so, um, you know, as the Fed would say, you know that that's the reason they separate core from from uh, from from the rest. Um, you know, those things can change quickly, um, and uh, hard to say what effects. You know, China evades Taiwan tomorrow. That may change things. If uh, we have changes in policy from Russia, that can change things quickly. Um, 
So given that, um, how much you know, credence should we be giving uh, CPI and the, and the deceleration here? Um, love to hear your thoughts there. Great question. Um, and, and let me be clear, just uh, even before I answer the question, just for the listeners, we are at a very, very interesting time right now in the economy and asset markets. Nothing that we say in this podcast or anyone saying in this, anyone talking at this particular juncture should have a lot of certainty. The, again, as, as, as Jim mentioned, I think the range of outcomes economically and, and by extension uh, from the perspective of asset markets is, 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 is quite flat right now. And it's a very wide distribution, which is very unlike what we saw at the beginning of the year when I thought the range of outcomes was actually quite narrow. We were going to slow and slow pretty precipitously and the markets are going to have to have a problem with that. Um, it's a much more two-sided bi-directional risk uh, from that perspective now. Uh, but you know, kind of answering your your question. So yes, it was energy was is a very significant drag on the overall time series, and and certainly played a role uh, in the decline in in things like median uh, CPI. But you know, you can't you can't uh, you know can't deny the the improvement we saw in sticky CPI, of which you know energy is going to have a very low uh, imp- impact on that. And more importantly, we saw a pretty substantial uh, deceleration on core services uh, CPI. We saw that you know come down. 150 basis points on a three-month annualized basis to um, to 6.7%. Now those numbers are well, no, they're more than double the kind of trend rate we we've observed pre-COVID, and so we're still very much not out of the woods. But it's just I, w- w- I think the number one thing I really want to focus on is the fact that we're seeing this kind of improvement without seeing the kind of drawdown in aggregate demand you typically need to see this kind of improvement on inflation. It's you know it's very clear that um, you know to to you know to to kind of tip the cap to the teen transitory, which was very wrong last year. Uh, it may be the case that both the transitory camp and the persistent camp are right at just at different t- intervals. You know, the persistent camp was very right um, in, in calling for the the incremental surge in inflation going back to last fall. But it, it could be the case that if we observe this kind of breakdown in inflation, and again, it's a broad-based breakdown across core goods, core services, median CPI, sticky CPI, um, if we see this kind of broad-based breakdown continue over the in the ensuing months, then transitory team transitory will ultimately be proven right. So, um, and that's kind of the nature of markets. It's not about whether you're a bull or a bear. It's about you know the timing with which you <laughs> buy and sell securities and <laughs> exposures. That that's all that matters. <laughs> I just want to add one thing. I want to let Jim continue down his path, but I just want to say one thing about the this uh, inflation and what's going on right now because. It's only been a couple of months ago, I think, that Powell came out saying that, you know, there are two parts of the whole inflation picture, energy and food, we don't control. That's why we look at core CPI. And oddly enough, exactly after that speech or whenever he made that comment, those two things have just headed south, you know, dramatically. And we know that in particular oil is being massively manipulated by the, in my opinion, very risky strategy by the White House in terms of releasing so much of the strategic petroleum reserves because of elections, in my opinion. Um, but of course, we knew that in especially in energy markets, you know, a million barrel here or there can really make a huge difference um, because with commodities, it's very, very here and now demand and supply that determines the price. So I, I also caution this as... Yeah, let's not celebrate too much right now. It's one number, and we know things have been manipulated uh, um, in in recent months. And I guess from my perspective, uh, maybe we'll talk about uh, this more about uh, later. 
I think we're into this new regime in terms of just inflation. I mean, inflation as a whole, I think we we can see much more unpredictable sort of trends in inflation, which will make it very hard for any economist or commentator to make much sense of this. Uh, of this. And I also think this will then you know, allow markets to be much more volatile than than what we've seen in the past. But anyways, that's a side note. I want you, Jim, to continue down the path of, of where you were heading. Yeah. So now this is where I really put a gun to your head is, you know, three to six months again, uh, who knows, we can make broad, but, you know, as we go further and further out, it gets, this is where your conviction, right? Where you see the path of, of things really kind of shaking out. And, and uh, I think kind of comes in, Let's talk six months to 12 months. So let's extend it uh, kind of a little bit further. Um, you know, again, I know that's not your primary. You're really uh, talking to people about quick moving uh, changes and what that might mean for, for shifting from, you know, one regime uh, segment to another. But really, I'm sure you do think about the big picture quite a bit. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts, uh, you know, about six to 12 and then, and then longer term and then why. I'd obviously, you know, how do you feel that way and why? Yeah, great question. So uh, just as an aside, you know, uh, 42 Macro, most of our, you know, sort of risk management uh, investment horizon is focused on the rolling three to six month forward time horizon. Uh, we definitely have, you know, very informed views on sort of the six to 12 month horizon. But, um, you know, generally speaking, in terms of, you know, how we've uh, orchestrated our back test, it tends to suggest, it tends to, to be the case that the markets are only pricing in things like the rate of change of growth, inflation, inflections in policy on usually no more than three months forward. Um, you know, you know, things like, you know, is a company going bankrupt or not? Those things tend to be much more longer lead times in terms of market uh, response. But uh, so anyway, just kind of focusing on the six to 12 month forward view, um, you know, I don't think we're too dissimilar from the consensus, which is calling for a pretty uh, significant deceleration in inflation, particularly when you get out six to 12 months. Um, and that's when you really start to see the breakdown uh, in the in the time series momentum. Now, the one thing I think that is pretty interesting is if you look at our model on inflation, it's now starting to call for, let's call it a June, uh, a bottom uh, of June of 2023 bottom um, at, you know, a pretty elevated level, just, you know, just shy of four percent. Now, again, now uh, th that's very path dependent. If we don't get the kind of continued breakdown we see, uh, we currently, you know, we just observe in the July CPI data on, you know, some of the things on that the core PCE, we're going to continue to see a Fed that's very much, you know, actively engaged in removing liquidity from the economy and financial markets. And as a function of that, we're going to see a more significantly negative growth slowdown um, in the first half of next year which will ultimately lower that entire curve. So again, you know, answering everything today is based on how the world is currently set up today, uh, just from a Bayesian prior standpoint. Um, so, you know, kind of to, to answer your question, or sorry, not to answer your question, but that, to me, I think the most important dynamic in that whole process is inflation could be bottoming at a level that is very inconsistent with the Fed's 2% target on a year-over-year -year rate of change basis, which implies that, you know, we, you know, if we don't sustain the kind of breakdown again in, in, in annualized momentum, then we're talking about a Fed policy setting that's going to be significantly more tight throughout 2023 than what is currently priced into money markets, Euro dollar futures, Fed fund futures, et cetera. And so to me, I th as I mentioned, you know, I think the kind of the key takeaway from this discussion is like, hey, look, the distribution of outcomes is extremely wide. You know, it's a very credible case to seeing a Fed that is significantly more tight 
to than than what consensus is currently um, pricing in. And also a very credible case to sink a Fed that is way more dovish in one to two months than it, what is currently priced in. And so to me, I think it just it makes the game hard. But ultimately, you got to make a bet if you want to make money in financial markets. So I think six to 12 months is the toughest. Right. Uh, I, I would agree with that 100 uh, percent. Um, it's easy to see the uh, deflationary effects that you'd expect from the Fed accelerating off. Uh, it's low here. Uh, and any other time, I, again, we don't have a lot of uh, inflationary history in the last 40 years. But if you go back to the 60s and 70s and prior, when we did have inflationary periods, um, you know, the Fed does have the ability to uh, slow growth, uh, as we know, by by raising rates. And and, and they all always do. Uh, the question is, how much can they and how much is structural? And ultimately, at what point um, does that structural inflation uh, meet uh, decline in, in growth to a point where they're not willing, uh, you know, to, to they have to choose, right? And and they and, and so where is that structural level of inflation is important, kind of like you highlighted. And and at the end of the day, if if that's going to be higher, uh, and how high is a question, right? At some point, you start to get um, maybe, uh, and we've seen this in the past. Uh, people starting to lose faith in the Fed's ability to control inflation. I think that's what we may start to see six, 12 months out or so. I think that's the big question at least is, are we going to bottom at a higher structural level of inflation that people expect or that's being currently priced? And what does that mean for long-term inflation expectations that the Fed can then control? Right now they're able to control those long-term inflation expectations. I mean, it's pretty impressive if you think we're at 8.5% percent CPI, right? Um, and there we're pricing 10 year break evens around two and a half, right? That's, um, uh, you know, that we're basically looking back at the last 40 years and saying, hey, we're going to be just slightly higher in the last, you know, uh, 40 years on average. But, and again, that's that's what I think the base case is for people. But um, that, that assumes that the last 40 years is where we where we live now, and uh, not in some other period, if you ask me. And so I do think that's the, the toughest time. So given that, Let's let uh, let's now transition to long term. Do you you know based on your views, do you think the Fed uh, controls things here um, and then uh, ultimately gets gets the world back on track in the next year uh, or two uh, to where we were uh, in the last uh, you know where we've essentially been for the last forty years? Yeah, so whew, that's a loaded question. <laughs> loaded question. Two guns, by the way, <laughs> were counting against my head. So, uh, for those of you keeping the store at home, <laughs> um, anyway. So, uh, so I th- the first thing I'll say is that you're. I, I think you're very. I, I very much agree with you. Uh, not to make boring TV, that we're going to bottom at a at a, at a level of inflation that is unacceptable relative to um, not oh, both the Fed's mandate, but also to to recent to recent trends. Um, it's very likely, however. That along that path to getting there, the markets are going to eventually price in the full recovery. And at some point, we're probably going to have to unwind some portion of the market pricing in that full um, decline back towards 2% inflation. Um, you know, fun fact, you know, the Fed is forecasting core PCE, um, which is currently at 4.8% year over year, to be uh, to end 2023 at, at 2.7%, um, which implies obviously a deceleration of, of uh, you know, 210 basis points. Never in history, in the history of that time series, have we seen that kind of decline over that sort of period of time without going through a recession, you know, without having had a recession first. So, um, you know, there, you know, so it's 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 interesting to say it's interesting to the least to say the least that you know if we get that kind of decline in inflation, 
Um, you know, will we need to see a recession to do it? Uh, I was certainly in the camp that we were going to have to get a recession. Um, and, and part of the reason for that was that it became very clear, um, li- you know, listening to the Fed's statements, particularly Powell's statements in May and then again in June, um, that this is a Fed that is increasingly comfortable with, you know, uh, delivering uh, economic downturn, a recession, an actual recession to get inflation under control. And knowing what we know about core PCE, it's like you're going to have to get an inflation. Uh, you're going to have to have an inflation uh, recession to get uh, to achieve your inflation objectives. Um, that may no longer be the case. Certainly, the most recent data we got out of this J- July CPI report um, would seem to create uh, a new avenue for for that debate. Um, so we certainly have to acknowledge that as, as market participants. Going back to kind of the longer term, um, you know, inflation dynamic. You know, there's a lot of different things pushing and pulling the inflation, the, the stationary mean of inflation higher. Not the least of which is globalization, aging. Uh, I forget the guest uh, Niels you, you had on the uh, the podcast a, a few weeks ago, uh, who wrote the paper on on the, the the structural aging factors. That's one of the factors in our in our in our structural inflation model. Um, and so, if you're, you're talking about inflation, let's use the high end of that range. It's somewhere around 2.8 percent for core PCE. If you know that's you know that's a that's you know the Fed's they Fed wants to. And so, what are they going to do about that 80 basis points? Is if we can't get back down to that 80 basis points, is the Fed's policy setting going to be I don't know, you know, just way too tight for way too long of a period of time? For most of this uh, this decade, because they're kicking and screaming, trying to get it back to two, um, or I think is e- equally as um, uh, relevant um, is they, they you know they opt to to sort of acknowledge that and opt to sort of you know make me they they do it under the guise of a green transition or green inflation or something you know where the they effectively you know revise their inflation target higher. I mean they've already done it right. They did it back in August of 2020. By you know effectively saying it's an average inflation target and we're going to stay as easy as possible until we achieve our employment mandate. That was you know big code word for you know we're going to let inflation run hot, <laughs> and so we've seen kind of the first step in that direction. So it's it's not inconceivable that you know we see a, a couple incremental steps in the direction of you know acknowledging that there's just going to be more inflation. We got to deal with it, and if that's the case, then this is a bond market that is you know egregiously overpriced from that perspective. Um, and the reason I say that is that, you know, we're still talking about term premium. If you look at 10-year term premium, somewhere mi- minus 70 basis points, you know, at the highs of the inflation episode in the 70s. And by the way, I'm not saying this is the 70s. I do not think it is the 70s, to be very clear. But at the high, you know, just kind of giving you some bands of outcomes, you can have term premium as wide as, you know, three, 400 basis points on the 10-year treasury. Now, again, I don't think we're going there, but you could go from minus 70 to plus 100 and that's a very different bond market than the one we've come out of. And it's a very different uh, 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 asset mix from the perspective of sector and style factor dispersion in the equity and credit markets, right? And so to me, I think that's a real key question here. And part of the reason why you might see an expansion in term premium for those who are kind of not as into the weeds on bond math. <laughs> but uh, you know, you're talking about a higher level of inflation. Higher inflation creates more inflation volatility creates more economic volatility and all things up being equal on the policy rate, et cetera, you do need to price in higher uh, risk premium into the asset class. And if you price a higher risk premium into the asset class in the treasury market, obviously you're going to be talking about pricing in wider risk premium across the curve. But ultimately, I do think that a Fed that acknowledges a higher level of inflation with easier policy is likely to be positive for, you know, for, for risk assets. I think you touch on a very important point on uh, the, uh, you know, we can talk about whether the two-year, and this is kind of why I broke up the time period um, being correct, um, but the amount of risk premium that's, you know, where the 10-year is priced 
right, uh, relative to the risks right, at hand um, does seem um, uh, inefficient or uh, mispriced. I guess mispriced is always a dangerous word, but um, and let me tell you a little, let me throw in a little bit of uh, history, and I'm sure you know this, but just for our listeners, um, you know, the last time we had a real secular or structural inflation, obviously 60s and 70s, uh, I hate to just refer to that period because, like you said, uh, we're not every period's different, but things rhyme. And if you look at what the Fed did in the 60s and 70s, uh, William McChesney Martin, uh, you know, lowered uh, interest rates significantly, uh, sorry, raised interest rates seven and a half percent. Uh, the Fed funds rate, uh, which people don't remember in 68 and 69, uh, to fight inflation caused a very mild recession in 68, 69. But was, it was enough to bring rates down over that two year period uh, from, from five and a half, six percent, uh, all the way down to about three. It leveled off at three and then took off uh, when, they, when they stopped and pivoted, right? Uh, it went and took off to 10 percent. Um, and the reasons why that are now well, relatively well documented, uh, these are structural effects, some of which, many of which we actually share in common now. Um, and I think that's an important thing to note. So we could, and we're likely, if they, they do cause a recession, if they continue down this path, and they're not even close to 7.5%, to be clear. Nobody's expecting them at this point to go 7.5%. But that's what he did in order to cause a very mild recession because the demand push was so strong during that period and on the back of the Great Society program from LBJ, a lot of fiscal policy, et cetera, a lot of things that we're seeing now. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, it leveled, you know, they couldn't get it down to 2% or below. Uh, the economy was in recession, uh, so they stopped and pivoted and that's when long-term inflation, kind of like inflation ticked higher and then long-term inflation expectations pivoted higher and that's what started to create this massive decade long problem. After that, people think Arthur Burns was asleep at the wheel. Arthur Burns raised uh, a Fed funds rate 10.5%. Again, we're talking about 3%, 4%, etc. 10.5%. Um, people called, still refer to him as one of the major reasons for why, why inflation uh, took hold and kept, you know, was alive until Volcker had to step in. That's not actually true. Um, you know, so there was structural underlying inflation, and a lot of which Again, if you just look at the factors, I'm not trying to say this is the same period, the structural causes of that, ultimately, a lot of them were, were the same things that we're experiencing now. So again, just a little history lesson, which I think is important for people to refer to and think about as what has the Fed done in the past? What does that mean? Yes, uh, they're, they're absolutely able to cause a recession and lower rates in the short to medium term, call it one year, two year, et cetera, period. The question is, is when that recession hits, are they going to continue at that point to uh, be, um, you know, uh, hawkish? Um, and and uh, history says that they can't politically and they won't. And they won't. Yeah, they won't. And, and if they're not, the question then becomes, what then? Um, and I think that point is what's important about this two year versus 10 year uh, risk premium that people are kind of not. Uh, pricing in, uh, equivalent, you, know, in, in, you know, everybody's talking about inflation in this general sense, but I think where and when and the timeline is incredibly important at this point, and particularly as we talk about kind of duration uh, 10 years out or so, which is actually the lowest spot um, that we're seeing, um, you know, out there on the curve. Yeah, I, I look, I masterclass, by the way, thank you for um, elucidating us on, on kind of, you know, some of these dynamics in the 70s, because I agree with you. And I myself am guilty of this is of just sort of 
labeling author Burns as this sort of this this guy who let the inflation genie out of the bottle. Um, obviously, it could be argued, and 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 I will argue that there's a lot more uh, that he could have done to stamp out inflation. It just wasn't politically correct and feasible at the time. Um, you obviously had uh, President Carter, um, you know, uh, President Nixon, obviously leaning very very aggressively against him uh, against those kinds of policies, and so it just you know I, I think he took the the the. He, he took the road of trying to have the cake and eat it too, which I fear that this, this Jay Powell Fed uh, may ultimately want, want to opt for, which is you want to get inflation down, but you also don't want to kill the economy. And eventually what you're going to wind up doing is having stagflation as the only outcome. Um, if, you, if, you, if you tighten just enough to slow a little bit, but you don't tighten enough to get rid of inflation, stagflation is really the, the modal outcome of that, of that policy mix. And so um, this is kind of the issue kind of longer term for asset markets is, uh, is is the Fed going to allow the process of returning inflation back to trend, however quickly it may take? Again, as I mentioned, we could be looking at month-on-month annualized rates of core PCE at 2.5%, 2% by September. Or it could be we don't get there any point in time or we don't sustain that at any point in time in the next several years. Uh, again, as I mentioned, the distribution of outcomes is is is, is quite wide, and 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 each of those scenarios needs to be sort of um, accounted for in your in your portfolio construction, to the very least. Um, so yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. You know, one other thing I would call out is that you know if you look at ten year inflation swap rates, which you know we, you know you can look at tips break evens. Uh, you know, some people don't like break evens because you know the Fed's leaning on the tips market, so it just goes straight to the source. We're talking about ten year inflation swap rates at two spots seven percent. And so, you know, the upper end of our range for our core PCE model is 2.8%. And historically, there's been this 50 basis point spread between headline CPI and, and core PCE. This thing's mispriced by 60 basis points. Today, you know, even at the peak of, a, or just rolling off the peak of a, of a very significant uh, inflation episode. And so to me, I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, if we if we move into this era of higher inflation, which I would argue we already are in, and it's persistent, there's a lot of institutional asset allocators that are going to be dragged into this regime kicking and screaming, um, unfortunately. And, and so it just is what it is. It goes back to the question, that I think, of the, of the decade, which is, does the Fed save the bond market or does it save the economy and the stock market? Um, you know, I think the worst possible outcome is if it, if it tries to do both. Yeah, I, think, I think the last thing I'd say about the, this before we kind of move on is credibility, right? The Fed has credibility, you know, at least with the market uh, from the last 40 years. Um, and they're, they're pushing the, the market around as they tend to do. Um, what happened in the 60s and 70s is the market lost credibility in the Fed. And that was partially, primarily, I would argue, because of structural factors that they could not control. And so, um, you know, the question is, is that the case? And if we get there, uh, you know, again, in the next year or so, year two, uh, you start to see, you know, the market realize that the Fed may not be able to control this. That's when things get, in my opinion, very interesting um, uh, and can lead to major regime change, uh, you know, decade-long effects. And as we know, if you get that direction right, uh, as people, you know, who have the last four years, you're going to make a lot of money. Um, uh, you know, hard, hard thing to get right. But uh, I think, as you mentioned, mispriced. Uh, last question for you as related to this, what's the trade? Uh, how would you position? <laughs> and that's always kind of where does the rubber meet the road? Um, you know, it, it, do you have any trades in particular that you like, uh, given that? 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think I would say, let me start by saying, you know, I fancy myself a, a macro risk manager and the number one goal of a macro risk manager is, is to not lose money, um, is to help investors compound returns and avoid drawdowns while doing it. Um, you're probably not going to, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in a raging bull market of 1999 or 2021, you're probably not going to outperform listening to folks like myself. Um, but over time, what your, your goal is, uh, is is compound returns and and have a higher, you know, adjusted net value, you know, you know, some years in the future as a function of not having to suffer the kind of, um, you know, kind of, you know, geometric return decay that you tend to see. The I think volatility drag is the appropriate term for that. For the, go look it up for those who are not aware of that. Anyway, so kind of what's the trade uh, from my perspective? Uh, I think there, as I mentioned, there are, you know, sort of three core scenarios that I think need to be reasonably allocated to across, you know, an investment portfolio. Um, there's this sort of base case scenario, which is, you know, growth is likely to continue to slow as a function of the lagged uh, impact of the accumulated tightening we've seen to date. Um, and it's likely that inflation uh, slows, but perhaps not as not at the same pace that we saw and observed in this in this breakdown in, in July CPI. That trait says you can be long risk, but you certainly want to be favoring defensive sectors, style factors within the, within the equity and credit markets. You probably don't want to be too far out on the risk spectrum uh, as it relates to, to digital assets because that is an inherently a, a more unstable environment than an environment whereby with, in which growth is accelerating and the Fed is you know kind of adding to the liquidity function uh, in the economy, the Fed and Treasury combined. Um, so that's sort of the base case scenario, um, you know, kind of long risk, defensive, defensive oriented style risks. Um, the bull case scenario, which we talked about, is a scenario in which you know the the market is significantly breaking down, or not the market, but inflation rather, uh, inflation pressure is significantly breaking down on a month over month annualized basis. And if that continues, we're talking about a Fed that by November second is very much done with rate hikes, and you know talking about you know maybe revising its balance sheet, the pace of its balance sheet um, withdrawal. And more importantly, I, I think it's less to do with quantitative tightening as it relates to net liquidity. In that environment, if we did see that, you're talking about $2 trillion of excess liquidity sitting in the reverse repo facility that would become de facto QE if applied to asset markets, if given the green light by the Federal Reserve. And so it could very much overwhelm the Fed's quantitative tightening program if we achieve some of these sort of more, I would say, best case scenario outcomes uh, with respect to inflation. And so that obviously needs to be allocated to, because again, it's no longer this kind of distant possibility. The data is telling you this is a legitimate um, potentiality. And so that obviously favors being even more longer of risk. Again, as long as growth is continuing to slow, you're generally going to want to favor defensive sectors and style factors. But the one caveat to that is that, and this is, I think, the hardest part of getting the trade right today, is, which is if inflation does continue to slow at that pace, which again is a massive if, there's not a lot of time series history suggested it, it, it should and could, but if it does, you might actually start to see a reacceleration in growth. Because again, what it ultimately implies is that maybe the Fed's policy setting was, was not as restrictive as we all thought it was after all, and that this economy is, you know, still has a ton of potential to continue growing gangbusters. Um, you know, you've talked about on the program, uh, Jim, that there's still a lot of sort of pent up 
fiscal in the pipeline already that that is sort of waiting to be spent and allocated to the economy. So that's something that could potentially, um, you know, cause growth to inflect as well. And again, these aren't our base. That's not our base case scenario, but I'm just sort of outlining all the core tenets of the bull case scenario. Why and why I think markets have recovered so aggressively off the June lows. Now, again, if we had all these data points in hand, we would have obviously done a better job positioning for them. But, you know, it is what it is. We just have to focus on the next play. And then the last scenario, which I think is again, just as credible as the other two, which is this breakdown in inflation momentum that we just saw is not persistent. And we really struggled to get well below, you know, kind of four, you know, high threes, low fours from the perspective of annualized core inflation momentum. And that to me is really scary because it probably means, you know, this is a Fed that at least at face value, just taking their words and their, you know, take their words for it, is, can and will tighten us into what must be a significant slowdown, just given the you know structural sh- upshift uh, in the inflation. Again, they're going to try to beat us back to two percent inflation in that in that scenario, but clearly the dynamics you know under you know an underlying inflation momentum are preventing that outcome from happening. So ultimately, they just have to do a little bit more tightening than was very or not a little bit a lot of bit more tightening than what is currently priced in. So um, you know, as I mentioned, you know again that 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 distribution is very flat and very wide. And so I think from a portfolio construction perspective, I don't think it really favors leaning too far into the wind on one of those scenarios right now. Because again, I don't know that we have enough data um, and enough ability to forecast kind of which path, uh, which is the path of least resistance and ultimately the most 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 um, high value path to take. I just want to pick up on something that uh, Jim referred to, and, and, and this is this political correctness of central banks. And I just wonder at the moment when I look at things is that there are a lot of things happening in the world right now, um, both from you know the war in Europe, but also in terms of the uh, still the fallout of, of COVID. And I wonder if the Federal Reserve that, you know, to some extent, even though they probably wanted really low interest rates, ultra low interest rates, um, we also know that as soon as they do that, they lose the, the, one of their main tools in the toolbox. But now at the moment, they actually have a an excuse for hiking rates significantly to get that tool back. Um, so I think that's one thing that we need to uh, bear in mind. Um, and and then the other things that I think are very important, and this is what I, I mean, I'm going to definitely dumb down the conversation compared to you two, but, but when I look at my, with my simple view, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing people always talk about, oh, we have to go back to, you know, the 2% inflation target that, by the way, I mean, this was probably picked out of thin air at some point, right? It's not really, you know, where does the 2% come from? But in any event, it is a target that's been there during a period of of globalization where we we know that all the th- all the forces helped us to have low inflation and low interest rates. Now, I think the three of us agree and certainly some of the guests we've had on this series agree that the world is changing and we're probably already in a deglobalized world. We have a massive demographic shift including in the US that to me, seems very inflationary. And of course, we talk about this as if inflation is the only thing that the Fed worries about, and it's not. We have unemployment as well. And I mean, you know, I'm sitting over here in Europe, and despite all of these crises, there's no people to be found in terms of getting people back to work. Everybody's saying, oh, we need people and so on and so forth. I think that seems 
very inflationary as well. Um, and, and it's going to keep unemployment rates at a level that makes probably central banks very uncomfortable in general. So I just struggle in general to see how we can even how we should even be talking about getting back to what it used to be, because I think the world has changed. And if and if we believe, certainly I do, that there is something called the 40-year interest rate cycle, well, we have a long ways to go. And we shouldn't even worry about getting back to really ultra-low rates uh, for now. And actually, uh, we just released uh, yesterday, I think it was, uh, an episode uh, which I really encourage people to go and listen to with uh, Edward Chancellor, who just released this new pri- uh, book, The Price of, of Time. And he's probably one of the leading financial historians, especially when it comes to interest. And he doesn't see a bright future uh, for those who are hoping for for low uh, interest rates. So I just think it's interesting. I'd love to hear how you maybe in your work factor in things like demographics, Factoring things like maybe unemployment and some of the structural changes that that I think we all agree that that they're out there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great, great question. So, very, very. I think it's extremely important to factor in not just sort of like these these longer term trends, but understand exactly you know how to use and weaponize those longer term trends into your asset allocation. So we have this thing called what we call our four horsemen. Of economic risk at 42 macro, um, there's you know politics, leverage, balance of payments, uh, and demographics, and and demographics is very much one of them. We sort of look at demographics through the lens of of you know the working age population growth relative to the old age dependency ratio, and you know one thing that is is pretty um pretty clear is that you know we're obviously you know we have a little bit more working age population growth than kind of the rest of the developed world uh, certainly relative to places like China et cetera, on a on a you know 5 10 year forward basis but our old age dependency ratio is really starting to rise and that's not you know that's consistent across much of the developed world including in China where we you know where we had a significant amount of uh, kind of globalization and and tapping into their their underutilized labor resource you know all that's sort of changing in the sense that you know, this, this, this structural decline we've seen, you know, looking at the U.S. statistics and, and isolation, this, this this structural decline we've seen in the employment to population ratio, labor force participation rate, which, by the way, didn't start with COVID. It's been trending lower since 2000. <laughs> you know, it's only going to continue to, to decline. And so companies are going to increasingly be sort of, you know, increasingly find it scarce or find it difficult to, to meet production targets, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in this world where, People are aging and leaving the workforce, and you can make the case that there's, you know, for political reasons, maybe not joining the workforce with the same kind of fervor um, that, you know, you might have done that in recent decades. So I think going back to the question on interest rates, I mean, it all this boils down to the, to the fact that, you know, some people believe that, you know, inflation is purely a monetary phenomenon. I think, you know, just living through the pandemic and seeing what happened in inflation, it's, it's not just a monetary phenomenon. It's a fiscal phenomenon. It's a it's a it's a resource scarcity phenomenon. It's a it's a bunch of different phenomenons, which is why our, our secular inflation model um, has sixteen different variables, sixteen different you know critical key variables to, to to help guide the the output of that of that model. Um, again, I don't think the model is the letter of the law. If we're having this conversation, you know, eight nine years from now, that you know we actually nailed it to the to the decimal place. But I do believe directionally, it has proven directionally accurate, and I think it's likely to continue to prove directionally accurate. Um, in terms of the kind of the change and all those different variables. And so ultimately, we're talking about a time series that instead of making 
seeing lower highs and lower lows on inflation and, and by extension interest rates, we're going to be making higher highs and higher lows. It's still going to cycle. You know, we're still going to have a Federal Reserve that re responds to inflation being too high or too low or employment being too tight or too loose uh, at various stages of, the, of that process. But ultimately, the direction of travel is higher. And, you know, I think the starting point of this kind of 60-40 allocation, um, which is very popular across the not just the institutional investment community, but obviously the retail investment community, that's probably wrong. You know, we probably need to make space for, you know, something that looks more like a 60, 30, 10, uh, whereby the 10 is physical and digital commodities. Now, I'm certainly not going to get on the podcast and tell everybody to go buy a uh, 10% Bitcoin allocation. But uh, I do believe that, you know, things like Bitcoin, things like gold, things like physical commodity baskets will have a pretty important place in investor portfolios uh, in this in this coming decade. You know, again, this is a decade we're exiting that looks a lot like the kind of 90s where everyone's long U.S. stocks and tech stocks and bonds and things, you know, all that stuff was working. But we're just in a different era. And I think it's going to get increasingly proven uh, once we get to the other side of this Fed tightening cycle and economic cycle and the dollar starts to decline. I thought you were going to say the 10% was going to be trend following and volatility uh, investment <laughs> well, strategies. No, no, I, so I, I very much, I very so much agree. Are. I very much agree that alternative asset allocations and alternative investment managers is part of that bucket. Again, it's, you're not going to, you know, again, I agree with that. Uh, and I always mispronounce his name. So forgive me, uh, uh, Mr. Ilnanen, anti Ilnanen. Terrible pronunciation. Ilnanen. It's a really difficult name. Ilnanen, yeah. Yeah, I very much agree with him that the starting point of valuations renders this concept of beta, you know, more or less dead. Like you got to go find it's this is an alpha generators market and will be an alpha generators market for an extended period of time. And I think it's going to be one by one. We're going to be convincing large institutions and large swaths of retail investors that that is the case. Uh, the, what we experienced in 2001 and, you know, obviously throughout the 2010s decade uh, is, is, is going to increasingly be proven to be something that uh, we're not getting back to. I want to dive in here because I think you really highlighted a point that I think we all talk about it from different vantage points. And I think that's that's this idea of factor correlation and the idea that um, we tend to get clustering of things uh, in a similar direction when things happen. If you listen to the media or even most kind of wealth advisors out there, people and even the Fed, uh, you, you kind of we segment every factor on its own. And people seem like they were, they talk about uh, the war uh, in, in Ukraine as, as um, you know, a, a idiosyncratic factor, right? Something that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, but, you know, and, and there's lots of other things, you know, slowing of <clears throat> growth versus value and what that means in terms of money supply, protectionism, deglobalization, um, fiscal policy. These are all, to, to most commentators, separate um, things. Um, but we've seen in other periods these things clustering as well. Um, I think I'd like to highlight, you know, the, the military, you know, conflict and, and increasing likelihood of that, for example, which people think is completely unrelated to some of these other things going on on the money supply side and the inequality side. Um, you know, and I'd love to, love to hear your thoughts about how you look at kind of correlation and, and factors, uh, you know, uh, and how they cluster. Um, you know, obviously, historically, if you look at, uh, you know, periods of, of higher inflation, we have geopolitical stress. We also have much higher volatility in FX, um, which creates uh, dollar denominated debt crises and also issues there. We also tend to see periods of deglobalization and protectionism. 
right? Um, all of this, uh, in my view, um, and I think the others, you know, would, would agree with this, tend to be driven by the fact that during times of uh, uh, populism uh, and, and uh, building of uh, people, you know, and solving inequality within countries, uh, we begin to look uh, competitively at the world and say, you know, we go from a, a cooperation game, I like to say, to a, uh, you know, a competition game. Um, and that simple change, which seems very overly simplistic, but it's incredibly important, is this idea that uh, we're trying to make it make do with the best we can because we can't all grow together, right? Um, you know, that idea can lead and does historically lead to global conflict. Um, we have, uh, again, we're seeing it now, and it's not just Russia and Ukraine, it's China, right, uh, and everything that's going on there. Um, and it's also, you know, every single uh, piece within a country, uh, you know, we're seeing the the, the greater um, kind of internal strife in the U.S. Uh, and a lot of other countries as well. So, um, again, people think of that as a separate factor. I'm using that as one example. So, we get a lot of these clustering of factors that all tend to lead to the same direction when they happen. This is why we get 40-year trends. This is why we get big, uh, longer cycles. How do you look at that? Uh, and, and what and what type of things do you put into the portfolio or suggest to deal with these changes uh, the, in, in, in correlation and clustering among factors? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh, whew. <laughs> if that's not a loaded question, then there's <laughs> never been one before. That's so. all I do is just... <laughs> You are you're very question. good at that, my friend. <laughs> so I'll start by saying 100 uh, percent agreement that inflation tends to be the underlying driver of a lot of political uh, dissension, discord, um, both within societies and across societies. Um, you know, Peter Turchin has a great book, Ages of Discord, uh, kind of on this topic and how inflation, um, you know, inflation episodes have historically contributed to, you know, kind of toppling regimes and, and breaking up societies, et cetera. So I tend to, I tend to, you know, lean on works like that to support, you know, what I'm about to say, which is, you know, when you have a scenario where, you know, if you look at the U.S., for instance, you know, we have a very, you know, sort of uh, our Gini coefficient with sin to suggest that we have a significantly much, much more wealth inequality and income inequality in our society relative to, you know, kind of Western de democratic societies. Um, and then you look at something like our employment to population ratio for prime working age individuals. By the way, these are two factors we we use as to, in, in our our po politics uh, risk in terms of the full horsemen of economic risk. You look at those two factors and you marry them together. It's very clear that the U.S. is on its own with respect to um, the kind of political risk, the populism risk that we're you know we've seen. And this has been the case obviously since the middle of the last decade, which is part of the reason we saw a populist you know take power uh, take power and. You know, I wouldn't necessarily say Biden was a populist, but he certainly leaned in that direction uh, during the um, during the campaign season. So now we're two for two since, you know, kind of getting to this place where um, the inequalities in the system and ultimately the kind of um, the the decline in the economy that produced that outcome from a from an employment to population standpoint um, are really contributing to this to this populism. You know, the, I think it really boils down when you go, you mentioned something about this sort of the mood shifting from, you know, collectivism to competition. I think that really is boiled down to a scarcity of resources. And that's kind of what inflation ultimately is boiled down to. It could be a scarcity of resources relative to the total amount of money that was printed, or it could be a scarcity of resources relative to we don't have enough stuff in the ground to feed ourselves or, or you know, prepare our jets or et cetera, et cetera. And so or we don't have enough workers and bodies of you know able supply of labor to 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 create enough of goods and services. And so at the end of the day, there's a lot, there's many things that cause inflation. 
the problem when you get to these inflation uh, episodes is those many things tend to boil up all at the same time. You have an energy shock, you have a labor shortage, you know, you get, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And all these things tend to tend to boil together. So, um, you know, I think I would be very much in the camp that, you know, as long as we sort of, it, it, as long as we stay in this regime, we're going to be you know, dealing with higher degrees of political volatility, higher degrees of, you know, economic volatility as a result of that. And it doesn't, not all has to be bad, right? We got political volatility in any, you know, the fiscal policy volatility in 2020 and 21 that was extremely positive, right? Like, you know, this, you know, that that's kind of the nature of populism is people tend to get what they want when they, they're in democratic societies. So, um, you know, you should all expect um, the fiscal policy sort of reaction function in this higher inflation decade to be, to be higher. And, and don't forget, you know, one thing we haven't talked about as, as a, as a finance, you know, kind of talking head consortium, if you will, <laughs> is the concept of the four turning, which by the way, hasn't gone anywhere. Um, we're, you know, we're getting deeper and deeper uh, into the four turning and shout out to my former colleague, Neil Howe, uh, who's uh, sort of seminal in helping create that, that work. Um, you know, we're getting deeper and deeper into the four turning, um, whereby we're going to start to see the revolutions uh, of this kind of political volatility swing back and forth until we ultimately try, you know, to one side, you know, whether it be the far right or the far left, you know, kind of gets to, you know, gets, takes, takes power and ultimately kind of gets to wield the, uh, the entire power of the government. So um, that's going to be fun to live through. <laughs> I wish I could, I wish I had a, a better, more positive message, but I guess the positive message is, you know, this isn't the first four turning and won't be the last, you know, this isn't the first decade where, the stationary meat of inflation rises instead of falls. It won't be the last. You know, this won't be the first decade where the Fed might look like it has no idea what it's doing on, on monetary policy. You know, it won't be the last. <laughs> so at the end of the day, we're all going to be fine. And as long as we understand that, you know, there's different cycles from a from an intermediate term perspective that we can take advantage of to sort of extract the bay that is there and available to be extracted from financial markets. Um, we can definitely do that along the way. And then when there's no beta to be extracted. Um, or you're in, you know, these more difficult, volatile parts of the market. Uh, there are guys like you, Jim, and and, and Niels, uh, to take advantage of from the perspective of, of alpha generators. Um, it doesn't all have to be bad. We just have to accept the fact that the distribution of outcomes has changed both cyclically and structurally. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, and 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 I hope you're right that we're all going to be fine uh, at the end of this uh, fourth turning. Um, I, I do find it interesting that so many people managing so much uh, money. Many of them have never, you know, done so through an inflationary time. So, you know, I, I really do worry about some of these uh, portfolios. And speaking about folio, I do want to touch before we start to wind down. I do want to touch a little bit about portfolio construction because here's another thing that I wonder in my kind of dumbed down um, way of looking at things, and that is a lot of these m models that we still refer to were, uh, you know, created 50, 70 years ago. Um, in a very different environment, in a very different world economy. And, and I wonder if we can still rely on them as, as much as we do, whether that's something you think about, whether that's something you take into account. I mean, I'd love to hear how, how, how you think about portfolio construction, but also because you mentioned this, kind of the, the role of the risk management and, 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 and can we still rely on what we thought of as safe assets as being safe? I mean, we have very prominent people out there talking about sovereign debt crises, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I just want to sort of jump in that direction before we have to jump, so to speak. 
Yeah. So uh, I really appreciate that question because that's something that's very, I'm very passionate about. Um, certainly we spend a lot of our uh, energy and efforts at 42 Macro and in, in, in trying to help investors uh, be more thoughtful about portfolio construction, which I find to be kind of the, I don't know, kind of like the Wild West still, if you will. It's kind of one of the last um, least it's one of the least studied and agreed upon kind of things that we do in, in, in our industry in, in terms of institutional finance. So, um, you know, I think let's start with the kind of what I think are the basic building blocks. And again, the, none of this is, is academic at this point yet. But, um, you know, I think from the perspective of trying to create construct portfolios, you need to sort of diversify, you know, across not just investment horizons, but also investment catalysts. You know, you, you sort of feel, I think that's kind of the first mistake a lot of investors make is to sort of, hey, I, I think all this is going to happen at one particular point in time. Therefore, I'm, be I'm betting on, you know, this one thing or series of things happening at this one particular point in time. I think you need to be a lot more thoughtful about using the various investment horizons uh, to your advantage. Um, I think we also need to acknowledge that, you know, there's always a range of probable outcomes to take advantage of. It's not just one outcome, your base case scenario. You need to be acknowledged and fluid and flexible enough and data driven enough, in my opinion, to acknowledge that and position for, you know, various tenets of the the, the bear case and the bull case scenarios, you know, that are on the sides adjacent to your your central thesis. Um, and then lastly, I think it needs to be quantitatively driven. Um, you know, so we, we think about the world through the lens of, you know, annualized expected returns from our from the perspective of our back test percent positive ratios, volatility, and covariance as kind of like the the two, you know, the two, the latter two being kind of the building blocks of understanding risk and the former two being the building blocks of understanding reward. And when you put all those different factors together, the diversification across times and, and catalysts, you know, the kind of acknowledgement and positioning for the full range of probable outcomes, not just your base case scenario, and ultimately doing that with, you know, different dis understandings of, of how things have historically traded and traded with each other, um, asset classes and, and factors with each other across history is very important. Uh, Mills, I think you bring up a very good question about sampling, which is, you know, we've lived in this very disinflationary era and a lot of the indices we would use to construct back tests and understand some of these quantitative dynamics um, don't go much further back to allow us to understand you know, kind of how different factors would have correlated or, or the volatilities of different factors in, in various regimes. And so it, it, it makes the game, makes that aspect of it challenging. And then there's also other data sets that go back, you know, 100 years, for instance, you know, you I, my, my, one of my favorite people uh, from my time in New Haven was is obviously Professor Schiller. And you, you download his data set and you got interest rates, stocks, everything you want back all the way to the to the 1870s. And, and so the reality is, you know, another problem with sampling, and I'm going on a tangent, but you go too far back in the data and it stops, it stops making sense. And so where do you, where do you draw the line? I mean, that's kind of something we all, as, as, as folks who've programmed models before understand that that's one of the many challenges of programming uh, models um, on, a, on both the in and out, out of sample basis, but kind of just getting to the, to, to the meat of it all. I think from a top down uh, st strategic asset allocation portfolio construction perspective, we need to understand that again, we're moving into a world that is a lot less monolithic from the perspective of the range of probable outcomes. We've been in this very disinflationary world. We've been in a world where the Fed has been incrementally easier at every slowdown in growth relative to the prior slowdown in growth. Um, and, and this is um, probably not going to be the case uh, in this in this decade. Um, you know, there's going to be still be tightening and easing cycles. There's going to be, you know, inflationary upturns and downturns and growth cycle upturns and downturns. But uh, we have to acknowledge that, you know, it's not going to be, again, that the direction of travel for all those indicators is just not going to be straight down or straight up in terms of the Fed balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera. So that from a portfolio construction perspective, 
requires investors to acknowledge that and, and start to you have a lot more balance than they've probably had in recent in recent years and decades. I mean, you know, quite frankly, if you own five stocks and nothing else in the last five years, you're probably not even listening to us. <laughs> this is probably not a very interesting conversation. Um, but the reality is, you know, that's probably going to be you know, one of the worst positions you could possibly have, uh, certainly on a relative basis to a lot of other um, outcomes um, from the portfolio construction perspective in the in the coming five years. So that, you know, if, you know, again, I, I, I want to stress to the listeners that, you know, we're using a lot of big words and processes, but the reality is, you know, I don't think we know. I don't think we have the right answers. I think the most important thing we can do is just be humble and Bayesian about this entire process and understand that, hey, we're probably going through regime change. Some of the things that we're used to doing are probably going to continue to work. Some of the things that we're used to doing are probably going to stop working. But it's very important for us to be very, you know, present and open and honest about that process in real time so that we can do less of what's, you know, going to stop working and do more of what's going to continue to work. So I think that's kind of if, if I have one key takeaway from this discussion, it's, it's definitely that uh, from a longer term perspective. Now, if I didn't know better, I would say it sounds like trend following, but there we are, Darius. <laughs> I, I, uh, I just heard long haul. It's weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny We're how we hear what books. we want. Right. So anyways, I want, Jim, you uh, final question, final thought before we start to uh, wind down, because I know we have a hard stop today and, and we definitely want uh, Darius to come back uh, later on in the year to uh, to uh, tackle some of the things we didn't get to and 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 where we're heading, but anything uh, you want to yeah, sort of yeah, less of a question, more of a just general comment. Uh, and to pull on what he was just saying, I think prediction is very difficult when we think of it as predicting a certain outcome. Uh, I would agree with that, um, but I think where prediction is incredibly powerful and uh, and you and people, you know, this is relatively well documented. Uh, is is understanding the distribution and what what kind of distribution you may be in or may not be in, and that's a very different type of prediction. I think most people's brains, when they say prediction, say, "What's going to happen? Are we going up? Are we going down? When are we going up? Or when are we going down?" But being able to predict, uh, you know, more leptocritic distribution, uh, you know, to use that word again, like a fatter tails or or something that's narrower, a period of, of calm, or or you know. Uh, Again, wider distribution that may be right leaning left leaning. Those things are actually quite a bit easier to predict from a probabilistic perspective. And I think um, not that anything's easy in life, but that's that tends to be the case. So I think I think that's broadly. I think that's what you're saying broadly. I think is if you take that approach over the long run, uh, you should have some edge. You should um, uh, do better. Um, and, and I think things like volatility, which is not directional, things like trend following, things like your approach, right, which is really very probabilistic. Um, really tend to have uh, an extra uh, layer of edge. And I really think, especially in this type of period where things are less uh, linear and more non-linear, I think that these types of processes become much more powerful and important. Absolutely. Darius, this has really been an awesome conversation with uh, so much knowledge that you shared with us. So thank you very much for doing this uh, today. Of course, everyone listening today should go and follow Darius and subscribe to uh, the great work they do at 42 Macro, um, where he's very generous when it comes to sharing content um, that you, uh, and you can of course find the links in the uh, show notes for today's episode. 
Because as you can tell from our conversation today, we are living in a true global macro-driven world and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jem and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Series. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.